people respond to fix things that they see that are wrong. They don't necessarily respond to sort of that open-ended opportunity for sure. So the way I think that plays out in leadership a little bit is you have an opportunity to try and get engagement out of people over accuracy, especially as leaders, we get nervous. You know, we want to be correct. We don't want to have egg in our face. But I think there's value in engagement, even if you're going to look uninformed or incorrect or whatnot. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Modern Business Operations. My name is Sagi. I'm the CEO and founder of Tonkin. And today I have the pleasure of hosting Ian Smith, the head of insurance operations and lending tree. Ian, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sagi. I appreciate it. This will be fun. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to operations, and maybe a little bit about lending tree and so like the world of operations in insurance. Sure. I grew up in rural Montana and forests and rivers and cows and stuff like that, being told that we couldn't play outside because a bear kept coming onto our street. I got interested into computers fairly young, taught myself to code and program. That led to some opportunity out in Seattle where I followed that career trajectory for a while. What I learned along the way was that I kept ending up in these situations where I wasn't talking about how we were to build something or how we were to make it maintainable, but what we were going to build and why and what success looked like. That kind of led to the operations and execution side of the business. I'm currently head of operations for insurance at LendingTree. LendingTree helps consumers win as they're making financial product decisions. And we have a lot of different industries, but insurance is a pretty big vertical for us. We help over a million consumers a month shop competitively their rates for like auto at home, health insurance, those types of things. That's incredible. I love the maker becoming an operator. And I completely agree. Those are different skills. And I want to come back to it, but maybe while we're on the insurance side of it, and you know, the industry is doing amazing, definitely cannot ignore the financial economic situation. And was kind of wondering, how does that affect you guys or not about Lendry as a company, but the industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, there's two sides. A lot of times when I tell people I work at LendingTree, they're focused on the mortgage side and obviously rates contracting and just the demand and the risk tolerance of banks is one thing. Working on the insurance side, it's had its own crazy cycle, particularly through the pandemic. People sometimes don't realize like we had kind of a reverse response in the pandemic than a lot of industries because you have an insurance, particularly property casualty insurance, auto and home, they're based on covered risk. And when that risk goes down, the insurance companies become immediately incredibly profitable because they're planning on paying out most of the premiums they take in. So when everybody quit driving, suddenly they were flush with cash. They were spending money on anything they could think of to spend money on. They were issuing refund checks and running expensive TV ad campaigns to gloat over the refunds that they were sending out to people. And key, they were cutting rates. They were charging less and competing for consumers. As we reopened and drivers started going back into work or just getting back out on the roads, this took a very different turn for the industry. So they went from being very high, riding high, very high, to situation where the first round of drivers that were coming onto the streets were on much more dangerous streets. Because it turns out congestion saves lives. They're moving much faster. Their wrecks were much more destructive than anything we've really seen before. Well, 
two parallel events. As we really got back to more like normal, the supply chain issues really kicked in. So you had all of these people that they couldn't get parts, they couldn't get their car repaired, they couldn't get labor. You couldn't find rental cars, or not rental cars, but used cars, and you had to run rental cars a lot longer. And this was compounded by the fact that the insurance industry as a whole, not every company, but the industry as a whole was charging less for insurance than really they ever had in the last few decades because they'd cut those rates. So you went from flush with cash and crazy profitable to untold losses. It's an actuary math driven business. So they have a path out, right? You can eventually triumph over that. But those short term three to six month cycles have really taken us all for a loop. This is honestly fascinating to even think through for so many people to look at certain events on face value. I was always fascinated with like the butterfly effect concept, you know, when, well, we know a butterfly can cause a storm, you know, and I think it's extremely relevant concepts to either you, when you build things or when you operate and kind of like strategize and to think through the rolling effect of some of the stuff. I, for a sec, for example, never thought about what you just mentioned with people are driving the roads in a higher risk tolerance because it's open. I can definitely relate, right? If you were doing that commute and it was always super backed up and sitting on a traffic jam for a while and now it's all open, kind of like take a different profile of driving and people don't yep. see how this is all affects. I think there's something to learn from it in general that can apply for a lot of different things. I mean, for a while, when this first opened, people were like, is everyone just a terrible driver now? Is everybody driving drunk? There's probably a little bit of edge cases of that. But a lot of it was, yeah, you couldn't go 60, 70 miles an hour into Seattle, especially not at high traffic times, because you get slowed down to 30 miles an hour. All of a sudden, you had a whole bunch of people that could go and were changing lanes and doing everything they normally did so much faster. And the roadways, it's an organic being. The roadways are designed for a certain amount of traffic at a certain amount of speed, but then just organically they end up with the amount of congestion that they're going to have on it. When that changed, especially when it went from one to two drivers to not back to congestion levels, but way over, it got a lot more dangerous and it took a while before people started to take note of maybe why. It is there anything you do about it? I mean, that's a whole other industry, but it impacted insurance in a big way. You know, you mentioned risk and Got me thinking about startup worlds, especially the tech startup worlds, just in the last few weeks with the Silicon Valley Bank situation, yeah. really not being able to pull out deposits before obviously the government stepped in. The risk tolerance, or I should say the priority of what you would once considered a very, very benign risk that you shouldn't worry about too much versus situations that the last three years kind of flip a lot of those things on their head. And I don't know, that's kind of what it made me think about. How do you think through sort of like what is acceptable risk or like how do you think through reprioritize your risk factors with all the unpredictability that that sort of butterfly effect can have for the last few years? Yeah. From an operational sort of view and even an entrepreneurial view, like you need to adopt the mindset that there's a lot of opportunity here. And I think when you went through the dot-com crash in 99 or 2008 and the mortgage crash, a lot of businesses were created or suddenly exploded. It didn't feel like they're exploding for two or three years, but the people who are doing good work found opportunity. The big concern, big focus that I've had is really on trying to make sure we don't freeze 
we're in quicksand. It is not stable. Things that this partner that was calling you up one week and, and saying that they had unlimited budget is now exiting the industry. So you have to adapt. And the key thing is not to frozen, not to get scared, not to sort of shut down, but to keep the team moving and kind of engaged. There's a book that we went through as a team that I really like. It was by a professional poker player named Danny Duke. And it's called Thinking in Bets. It's basically a discussion of various things, but one of the key discussions in there is the idea of resulting and understanding when you look back at something that was successful, was it successful because you played it right or did you get lucky? When you look at back at something that was a failure, was it a failure because you played it poorly or were you unlucky? Like you can have a, an initiative that is a 90% chance of success, but that means 10% of the time it will be complete and abject failure. We try and adopt that mindset of looking at those things more as bets versus like they have to work or we are failures if it doesn't work or it reflects on the team. We're looking to say, do we play this hand right? Did we play the opportunity as best we could? Maybe the customer then again exited the industry or made some other change that caused it to be a failure. But understanding, okay, did we build the right thing anyway? Can we use it in a different way? Can we keep adapting and growing? So for me, uh, acceptable risk involves taking action consistently to produce either outcomes or at least learnings. The unacceptable risk really falls into that category of not moving forward, of getting stuck and saying, we have to rethink everything that takes six months to do that. You may not have six months. You have to keep kind of on your feet. You keep moving forward. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin is the operating system for business operations, providing businesses with the building blocks to orchestrate any process with no code or change management required. Contact us at Tonkin.com to learn how you can build complex processes fast. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Adaptive Ops community at operations.community. Stagnation is basically the highest risk. I could not agree more. Progress is sort of like the only thing that you want to make constant. Everything else would be subjective or objective to the environment. I think you touched on an incredible point that I think a lot of companies and honestly, I think even individuals like contributors struggle with. The externalities are so extreme. Usually they're the 10%, like you said. Usually what we got used to in between cycles, between the 2002 to the 2008, in those ranges, there's some status quo that started to form, whether it's a valid one or a healthy one, that's a different story, but there's a status quo that start to form and you really have some ground rules of what successful outcome looks like. And then comes those externalities that basically swings a lot of those basics concepts out of whack. I think on a concept level, everyone listening can agree, progress, keep moving, and the quicksand is a really good example. But what would you say is a practical way to think through managing your time, right? Like looking at day in, day out, week in, week out. You mentioned six months, a lot of can happen. How do you take that into practice? There's a phrase I really like, which is you can't steer a parked car. People worry an awful lot about moving in the wrong direction when that's just the start of navigation. You can always turn around and go the other way, but it's really hard if you're just sitting there worried about what might be on the other side of that hill. There might be construction there and you got to turn around, but you're suddenly moving and you're solving problems as you move along. A thing that I preach quite often internally is this idea of cycles. 
you basically have 52 cycles in the area, 52 weeks. But if we're just being honest and you look at that and say, well, we're going to lose some cycles in like December around the holidays. You're going to lose some cycles where a lot of people are on vacation over the summer. You have short weeks for holidays during the year. And that's probably goes down to somewhere between 40 and 45 actual weeks where you can make a difference to the business. Coming from the development side, but I see the same things happen on whether it's media or sales. But coming from the development side, there's a level of risk aversion that starts to kin where we don't want to make changes on a Thursday or Friday. What if it breaks? Will we catch it before it's the weekend? Will we catch it before Monday? You don't want to make changes on a Monday because you want to see if everything is running the way you expect in kind of that business cycle. So that really leaves you two-ish days a week where you can make dramatic changes, where the organization is comfortable making dramatic changes. If you waste those two days, you waste a week, right? Not that anything like this ever happens, but if you had the situation where you were going to try and kick off a project and a critical person was on vacation, and so it's like, well, instead of meeting today on a Wednesday, let's kick it out to next Friday when that person's back, you've spent two cycles. And if you have that meeting and they like need some data and so you send it over to some analysts, that's another couple of cycles. You then are now ready to pitch it to the customer and they say they need changes. Well, another two to three cycles. So it is not hard to end up in a situation where before anybody has done any real actual work to see if this is viable in the marketplace, you're seven, eight cycles in. And if you're wrong, if the partner says, I'm not interested or I need dramatic changes, it's very inconceivable to be basically half of your year on something relatively small, something that everybody agreed at the start was small. So a lot of that thinking in cycles is like, how do you open up the rest of the week? What do people need to hear so they make a change on a Thursday or Friday instead of always deferring to lower that risk? What do you need to do to get people to schedule that meeting this afternoon or to follow up one-on-one with that person or to really understand the problem or look for that data right now to see if it's available instead of let's do it again at our next one-on-one, which is three cycles away. There's a lot of that that I try and push to say you only have so many opportunities throughout the year and it's far less than you think to make a difference on the business. Otherwise, if you think about it, like, of course, you have OPEX, you have the money you're spending. The one thing you're guaranteed to spend no matter what you're doing is that time. And that's a way to think about that time and say, like, your budget this quarter is 13 cycles. What are you going to do with that budget to make a difference? Because if you want to spend six cycles talking about it, you're not going to do anything this quarter. Maybe you'll be ready next quarter. But by the time everything else kicks in, you have to move from kind of the talking to taking some kind of an action. I think the action is a big part of it, too, right? I think there's another concept, some methodology of really being action biased. And you mentioned it with, I love the steering car thing. It's exactly that concept. Be driven by, do it now and do it versus like, let's talk about it. And I don't know if you feel it, but I definitely think that in the last few years with Zoom and virtual meetings being the easiest form of communication, the sort of the ability to huddle quickly and act. Yep. Because there's always another meeting and always another meeting. The cost of getting to the room together is lower because you can just click a button. And so people end up talking more than doing. And I think this Tuesday, Wednesday is probably the most visual thing I've heard about how you waste time by just waiting. Yep. And I think on a personal level too, the young kids, you can see it on them. And sometimes, you know, when you look at young kids 
it's all like a reflection to your soul because we're all just kids that kind of like grow tall versus really so like anything else and how hard it is for them to start the week and the mondays are always hard they came back home emotional and fridays are always hard you know because it's like the entire week and so you really exactly what you're saying that two and a half days of productivity during the week when the energy is high enough your mindset is in it and like you said with the equivalent of sprint or development cycle you also don't want to risk starting something and not being able to complete it I think it's really the simplest visualization I've heard for a long time. So I think this is really good stuff. My kids are a little older and it doesn't change, right? It's pretty easy to look. Maybe Fridays get a little bit better, but Mondays are like, well, it's predictable. Everyone feels terrible and they're having a hard time getting back up to speed. And then you're like, why was Monday so hard by the time you get to Wednesday? And then you you start (laughs) to wind down again. I think people way overestimate the risks of doing the wrong thing, which I've kind of reiterated here, and underestimate the risks of waiting too long. Because I started to do this, and I'm like, I'll bet you that there's a lot here. It's called Cummings Law. And the idea around that is it's an internet phenomenon, which is if you were to go out and ask a question versus go out and post an incorrect answer, you're much more likely to get engagement and the correct answer out of posting the wrong thing than you will asking for help. People respond to fix things that they see that are wrong. They don't necessarily respond to sort of that open-ended opportunity for sure. So the way I think that plays out in leadership a little bit is you have an opportunity to try and get engagement out of people over accuracy, especially as leaders, we get nervous. You know, we want to be correct. We don't want to have egg in our face, but I think there's value in engagement, even if you're going to look uninformed or incorrect or whatnot. Something I've done is if you have like a status meeting on three projects, putting them all up on the whiteboard with a status of unstarted is going to get you a lot more engagement than if you put a question mark. Say, hey, help me fill in the status and all of these because people will say, oh, it's not unstarted. And then they'll have a debate about what unstarted will look like and what they've actually done and how fast they're moving. You can do the same thing with like connecting items together that maybe or maybe don't have a dependency or putting out due dates that maybe are unreasonable. But if somebody's going to argue with you about a due date and say, that can't be done by the end of the month, but I can make sure it's done by mid next month, they have a lot more ownership in that than if I went and said, well, reasonably mid to late next month. That's a license for them to take it through the end of the quarter. There is a value there. Even if you feel like you're going to look stupid, people won't remember that you looked stupid. People remembered that they helped you and that they have a sense of ownership over the project that they didn't have before because it's there. It's their baby that they're correcting misinformation around and they're going to own and drive forward. I love this. I didn't know about the name of it, but I could not tell you how my entire life I've been feeling the same. The way I used to think about it all the time was the difference between a riddle and a puzzle. Yep. With a riddle is an open-ended, it's like an open question. There's too many ways it can go. There's also the fear of the other side of being wrong, which is kind of like the same point or open nerve that you're kind of playing on from the other side. Again, go back to kids, you know, as an example, it's much easier for a very young toddler even to look at a puzzle that has been put wrong and say, this is not the right way. Versus yeah. if you just give him the pieces and an open thing or like build it, it's much harder. I love the question one versus like just put a date there or just put a status there. Or I, as a leader, have seen a lot of times where you really want to get people involved and you really want to get people grassrooting a solution right from the start because that's kind of how they are a lot more engaged with it and you're part of their own work. 
And so it's much likely that they'll have be accountable for it. But the issue is, like you said, is that the zero to one thing is actually not a skill that everyone necessarily have or feel comfortable doing. You know, they might have grew up in an environment that didn't encourage that and many other reasons. Therefore, putting a very ugly mock or something, a very like stripped down, full with assumptions draft, that actually exactly invigorates your point, which is because then now they're in the job of editors. Now they're in the job of like, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. But if you just do the opposite, just give them like, okay, we want to create this utopian thing. What do you think? You'll hear crickets. So very, very actionable, I think, tip for anyone. Yeah. People rise to the occasion, but if they will look for ways to defer that problem back to the leadership of like, well, you figure out what to ask us to do. It once you get something more specific out there, even if it's wrong. And, and I find this is true. Like I'm not good at drawing on whiteboards. I'm always in front of people drawing on whiteboards. I'm not a good speller. I'll spell things on whiteboards in front of people and I will send misspellings to people in email, not intentionally, but boldly, because people are more likely to engage with that and say, like, hey, you misspelled this and here's my thought on what's going on. <laughs> it shifts power dynamic, right? From the boss comes to say to like, well, I can help the boss. I see some stuff that he doesn't. He doesn't know about this. Let me tell him about this. Let me tell him what I can do for this situation if he really wants to go there versus always being in the position of trying to sell a reason to engage and a reason to care about something. It's like, well, I'll engage with that when you've nailed on every possible scenario and problem. Well, that's what I'm paying you for. I knew you'd come along and help me do that. I can't do that. So you give really good advice. And I think all of those points are incredibly actionable. But I like to ask, you know, what is maybe an advice that you got early in your career or just in life that you want to pay forward? Something that comes to mind is less advice, but more, it kind of came through some training when early, one of my first jobs was at a grocery store and they kind of did a day of customer service training. And one of the things that really stuck with me was the idea of smiling and making eye contact. I do know that there's some cultural relevance to that because not every culture does that work. But in the U.S. in particular, if you're smiling, you're making eye contact, people can tell that you're present. People can tell that you're interested in them. People can tell that you care. People can tell that you're having a good time. And people want to be around others that are having a good time and they care about them and they're interested. And the other really valuable insight that was sort of thrown out in that process is that even if you don't feel happy, smiling, making eye contact, your brain chemistry does not like that inconsistency and it will conform your feelings to your outward expression. And so it is the way to go. And after you've gone through that and done that some you really notice it. I mean, you notice it when you go in and buy coffee or you go into a meeting and the people look, act, their shoulders are hunched, they can't stand up straight. They embody not having a good time and not wanting to engage. And so, I don't know, that one really sticks with me as kind of a transformative thing you can do whatever your role is. So true, so simple. That was awesome. If anyone wants to chat with you on any of the above or other, where can they find you? Is it LinkedIn? Is it Twitter? LinkedIn's a great place. Yeah, for sure. And I like to make friends. I like to solve problems. I like to help people. And I like to hang out with people who kind of have a similar mindset. So yeah, I'd, I'd love it if you reached out on LinkedIn. We'd be happy to chat. Awesome. Well, maybe people will send you smiley faces. <laughs> Ian, that was awesome. Thank you for your time. And that was a great conversation. All right. Thank you, Sigi. I appreciate it. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. 